Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. We'll pick up where we left off last week. Uh, notice the first word is and of this chapter, uh, which means it's an odd chapter break because they put us on the middle of a conjunction as they broke the chapters. Uh, really the last, we're in the section of the Bible that's the, the analogs or the, the historical capturings of the end of the book of Joshua. So we're at that part of the book. And if you're here tonight and you read ahead, that's be, you're here because you're a diehard Bible person. Because this is not colorful Bible stuff tonight. So we're going to cover three chapters. We are moving through this. Um, so get ready. Hold on to your pens. Uh, we, will, we will move through this. Uh, Joshua's in the mix now. They've moved into the Holy Land. As, as context, they just watched God beat up on fi a five-army co coalition. The five-army coalition was all the neighboring kings to where Gilgal is. So they really just cleared the middle of the camp. So as they're moving in as an evading army, they took care of all the nearby threats of people that could attack their women and children when they're out on a campaign. Um, only they didn't have to go out and attack them. They got to play defense and defend one of their allies and took out five kings in the mix all in one fell swoop. So then we get to the rest of the conquest narrative, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, I just like Jobab, he, he comes from the south. Jobab, king of Madan, and the king of Shimron, and the king of uh, Ashkshaf, and the kings of who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain of Chinneroth, in the lowland, in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, in the mountains, the Hivites below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and they camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. As we get into all these fancy names, I was thinking we should just go around the room and have each person try to pronounce the next name. <laughs> that got pretty complex. So in chapter 10, we had the Midland Territory kings. There were five of them. And now we get the northern kings, and it's the northwest, the northeast. It's all of kind of Israel out there. And the stakes get higher. When we start fighting battles in the kingdom, they don't get easier. They get harder. So the five-king coalition seemed like a threat, but we see some real indicators here that this is a much bigger threat. This is all the rest of the Canaanites saying, okay, we got to take out Israel because they're a problem and they're going to continue to conquer the land. So like any residing people, uh, they're going to fight back. Uh, there's some things here in the names. I'm going to highlight the ones that I thought were interesting. I'm not going to go through every name as you look through the rest of the chapter. That'd be a long, tedious night. But Jabin actually means intelligent or wise one. Uh, so it's a dynastic name. Like in Egypt, they had pharaohs and pharaoh was not a name. It was the name of multiple peoples. 
or we might say king. So when you see the word Jabin, it actually means the ruling one or the intelligent one over the country. It's not a personal name. It's a name like Pharaoh. It covers all of those Assyrian people that ruled. Um, and Hazor as a town is interesting because, and this is what, if you're going to see anything cool about these chapters, it's that all of these little details get confirmed in other places throughout world history. So Hazor is actually on Egyptian records. So there's a record of Jabin and, the, and Hazor as a city, which kind of confirms archaeologically that this is not myth or some sort of uh, tale. It is like the calling of a council in the north. Hazor would be the major city. At least that's what Egypt calls it in their records. If they want to deal with the Canaanites, they went to Hazor to do it. That makes sense? So this is like Elrond calling a, an assembly of all the good people of the land. Only it's not the good people, it's the Canaanite people. And Jabin calls an assembly or a gathering because there's a problem that they need to deal with, and that problem's Israel. Uh, so this is the capital of this area. Um, it, it says they heard these things, which means word is getting out about what's happening with Israel. To think that things happen in isolation or that Israel was catching anybody by surprise is not reading the text. So the, the fact that they, there's a clue there that says they heard of these things in verse 1 uh, is because they were having successes, and those successes spread throughout the land. Chinaroth is interesting because later on the word Chinaroth in other languages gets translated to Galilee. So we are in that part of Israel. On each of your tables tonight, we have a visual aid. So there's a lot of geography tonight, so get that map where you can kind of see it. If you see where the Sea of Galilee is, we're up in those kinds of areas. Hermon is beyond the Golan Heights. So the territory we're talking about in verses 1 through 5 is bigger than modern-day Israel. It's the whole region. Verse 3 also gives us a huge indicator that what we've seen so far has not subjugated all the Canaanites. There are tons of Canaanites still in the land that need to be subjugated. So here we now have a bigger army. In verse 4, it says that there are as many as the people as the sand is on the seashore. That's a biblical way to say you just can't count them. It's too many to count. Uh, because we do see numberings in the Bible going up into the hundreds of thousands. So this is an army that's bigger than that. It's just too much to count. So somewhere around probably the four or 500,000 people mark, they just stopped counting and they said it's like sand on the seashore or stars in the sky. It's another way they'll do it. But the point of verse 4 is that Israel is outnumbered. There are more Canaanites than there are Israelites. So they're better geared. So there's more of them in verse 4. And then in verse, at the end of verse 4, they have horses and chariots. We can read horses and chariots, and by today we know what those things are. For an ancient reader, that meant they had nukes and surface-to-air missiles. Like, this is state-of-the-art technology in the Iron Age. To have a chariot means you have blacksmiths with enough time to waste and enough wealth to build weapons of war. And they were war machines. Any foot soldier army that saw a chariot coming at them, especially with some knives on those wheels, and the horses get them going fast, they, the whole strategy of a chariot was to operate like a lawnmower on human beings. And they would just come through and slice through rows of human beings. These, When it says they had many horses and chariots, read that like they were utterly armed to the teeth with night vision goggles, full-on tactical equipment against a bunch of people with some pitchforks. They're outnumbered and they're outmatched technologically. This is a real army. So it's the best tech they have. The Canaanites are gathering these things together. It's the first mention in the Bible of chariots. 
right? So it's accurate on their timing and that we have those things. Egypt had them too, but I, as far as I could tell, they don't mention them necessarily. So we have this kind of situation where they're, they're there. Waters of Maron is just a camp area, a large plain kind of by Galilee. Uh, it's a priming space. It's where shepherds would have their sheep. So in the same fields where the star of Bethlehem is shining and the shepherds are watching their sheep would have been the fields where these armies are gathering. There's also a major plain area in the north part of, of Israel that is later on called Megiddo, um, which is referred to later on as Armageddon. So this is a place that's big enough and flat enough for armies to gather. You can go there and visit. It's like a big giant bowl. You can see it from end to end. It's enormous. Um, and it's like looking at the Lake Superior, only in plains and flatlands, in the middle of a pretty mountainous region. So the challenge here for Israel is getting bigger. Uh, Joshua has a formula now as to how to do battle. He simply does battle by going after and targeting uh, a time with the Lord. So he prays, he spends time with the Lord, and he does that. Um, so the world thinks that their, their numbers and their weapons are going to be good. Joshua's two-armed strategy is prayer. And he goes to the Lord, he consults the Lord, he does what the Lord tells him to do. So it is going to be the battle strategy of Israel throughout much of the rest of the Bible. Have a smaller army with less equipment and pray a lot. And that's how they're going to do battle. So verse 6, but the Lord said to Joshua, but being in reference to this big, huge army. So but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. I'll kill them all in a day. You shall, not, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So with bigger challenges comes a much bigger affirmation from God. God just matches it. God's promises are equal to what Joshua sees in front of him in the world. And I kind of like that idea. The bigger the challenge, the bigger the God. God just can, he is already and willing to do that. It says, do not be afraid again. That's a theme in Joshua. We see that a lot. God keeps saying, don't be afraid. Why would he do that? Because Joshua's scared out of his knickers. That's why he would do that. So he keeps saying it in part because Joshua continues to need, need to hear it. We all have an option to take counsel from fear or to take counsel from God. And that's a balance that has for the history of the world been a challenge to humanity. So God counsels his person and says, don't fear. Um, it doesn't matter what the past victories are. Joshua's seen some awesome victories in his life, right? So why is he still afraid? Because the enemy's still there and still in front of him. So despite what he's seen in the past, there's still this active fear that he has to wrestle with. I take courage from that. If Joshua's still chicken after beating the five, five armies, then it makes sense that I should be chicken and I'm not even facing an army or chariots with blades that want to mow me down like grass, right? So I love the idea that, that God talks to his people and that the people that he works with are often afraid and they're often scared. We just don't act on that fear. And that's kind of a difference. So we have the whole Bible to see how God wins battles, yet we're scared to talk to that person at work or deal with our family member, right? We have all the promises. We have way more promises from God than Joshua had laying right there in front of us, yet we still have a tough time with the things in our day-to-day -day life, and God still loves us. It's okay to be afraid. It's not okay to live following that fear. But the fear is real. So God wins. He's going to win, and we have those promises. I'll give you just a couple, right? First Peter 1 Peter 1.20, uh, all of this has been foreordained since the foundation of the world. Your life 
God knew about it before you were even born, and he knew what would happen. And here's another one, Revelations 13:8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb from the foundation of that world. So we have this idea that a smaller and equipped army is then put up against God, and they're going to attack, but they're not going to attack in such a way that God's not going to win. And so, and here's the other problem with chariots. If all you have are attack weapons, what happens when you have to go on the defensive? Because chariots are horrible in chaos. They're really good when they're lined up charging another group of lined up people. They're really bad when they're in chaos. So, verse 7, So Joshua and all the people with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom. Uh, So this is north of where their camp was uh, by Galilee, and attacked them. So when God says, don't be afraid, he actually sends them on the attack against a larger force. Right? It's like David versus Goliath. The one thing Goliath didn't expect was somebody to actually hit him with a rock, right? And that's the one thing that this massive, they think this is, they're going to just roll over Israel because they're going to go through Israel's camp at Galgal with these chariots on nice flat land, and they're just going to mow through them and kill them all. What they didn't expect is that Joshua with a smaller force, with a less equipped force, would go on the offensive. I love this. And we deal with it in our spiritual life too. When we're dealing with people that are aggressive to the faith, the one thing they don't expect is that you know the word of God. You ever run into those people? They'll say something about the word and you'll say, well, I don't know about that. We're going to do Jonah this weekend, right? So they'll say things like, well, Jonah doesn't live inside of a fish. And the answer to that is, well, the Bible doesn't say he lived inside of a fish, does it? And they'll be like, well, uh." the one thing they don't expect is that you know the word of God better than they do. You've actually read the book. Or my favorite is, well, People don't just walk on water. Where does the Bible say people walk on water? It says God can make people walk on water, but it doesn't say we have the power to walk on water. So there are things where when you know the word of God, when you go on the offensive because you're rooted enough, you've listened to what God says, you know his word, you can take fear and put it to the side because you can be confident in your faith. What the enemy wants is insecure Christians, lots of them. What he doesn't expect is people who actually know their crap. And are ready to talk about it. It's not crap. It's the word of God. Right? <laughs> so, so verse 8, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, like a bunch of chariots not knowing what direction to go. That gets ugly. It's who defeated them and chased them into greater Sidon, to the brook of Mesrephoth, and the valley of Mizpah, eastward. So they're going east. And attacked them until they left none remaining. So basically they're scattering in multiple directions because Misroth is to the west and Mizpah is to the east. So they hit the army hard, and it scatters in multiple directions. And that's what the word of God does when we follow what God does. Verse 9, so Joshua did to them as as the Lord had told him. When you follow what the Lord says, you don't need to worry about these things. He hamstrung their horses, burned their chariots with fire. It's interesting that Joshua here, again, we see him following the Lord's directions and getting victory. Do you see that formula throughout Joshua? Do what God says, get victory. Do it on your own strength, get embarrassing losses. It says he burned their horses with the chariot. That's interesting to me. If you could easily take those chariots, why not use them? Why not keep them? Why not have a mighty Israeli army that would conquer the world? Because that's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to take the tools of the enemy and use them for ourselves. He wants us to rely on him and his strength. So even though they could easily have taken these chariots and horses and used them, they wreck them because the point of Israel is not war and combat. The point of Israel is to bring peace to this land and get rid of the idols. 
So God's put, people don't put value on the weapons of the world. My, I'm not interested in controlling nuclear weapons and pointing them at people to get them to turn to Christ. It doesn't work. It's not the point of what we do. We would rather love people into the kingdom. So they flee west, they flee east, they're all over the place. Uh, the greater Sidon reference there is an interesting one. Later that becomes Tyre and Sidon, and then it just becomes Tyre. But that dates the book of Joshua at just the time the Bible says it should be dated. Because it doesn't apply that the Tyre is probably like a suburb of Sidon, but it grows bigger and better because it's on a better piece of land. So as you go through history, it changes its name to, to, to uh, Tyre later on. And at this point in the book, when it says greater Sidon, it means Sidon plus the cities around it. It doesn't even mention Tyre yet, which actually dates it right when the Bible says it should be dated. So just a side historical note. Verse 10. Joshua turned back at the same time and took Hazor. He struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. Um, God could do all of this stuff. I think I've made this point before. God could do all of this stuff with one angel. But he chooses to use the people of God to be part of his work because he cares about the hearts of the people of Israel and that they turn to him for things. So I think it actually, in a way, delights God when the people of God follow his will and his word. There's a relational aspect there that he wants his people to be part of it. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that the tribulations pr produces perseverance, Romans 5.3. God tests his people. He puts us in situations where we're scared so that we turn to him. And he can say, don't be afraid. But don't think that the Bible, that getting saved or being following God or following Christ, that that's going to give you this super life of non-trials and non-tribulations. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. God's people go through trials. We get sick. We have issues. We have folks we need to deal with. We have things in our life we have to wrestle with because God wants to test our hearts. The bigger the thing, you should be proud. God trusts you with bigger battles. So it's just one of those things. Like, if, if you don't have any struggles in your life, you should ask the Lord why you're not ready for any trials. And I'm not saying you should pray for trials in your life, but you should wonder if you have a shiny, happy life that you don't have anything that you have to wrestle with. Why is God not training you and equipping you? And that there should be some things you need to go through. So they struck in verse 11. That's a battle won. God uses Israel to judge Canaan and it is a complete and total judgment in verse 11. And they, uh, if they waited and played defense, those chariots would have chewed them up. They obeyed God. They acted quick. They hit them before they saw it coming. Uh, and they had a great victory. Verse 12. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, this is nice. This saves us like 12 chapters of Joshua, right? Because once again, they've grouped up and made it easy for Israel. So basically, they beat all of these cities in one battle. Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. That's an interesting phrase. So some of the things Joshua is doing at the direct word of God, some of the things he's doing because the Bible told him so. And that's a transition that we're really seeing for almost the first time in the word of God here. I didn't go through and try to find it in other places, but I think that's the first time we've seen that. He's acting on what the written word of God says, and he's acting on the direct revealed word of God. And as Christians, we're in the exact situation. We have the Bible to go off of, and we have our relationship with God to go off of, right? So 
Verse 13, but as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. So that's showing international contrast here, but it's not explaining why for each of these situations. What we can pull from verse 13 is that God commanded some of the cities to get burned and some of them not to get burned, and Joshua's responsive to what he's told to do. It means that he's not burning every single city. He's handpicking certain cities to burn. Why? That's a big question. What do these cities represent? What do they say to the people around them? It says, on their mounds in verse 13, uh, that word in the Hebrew is tell. And when you do any archaeological searches today, it'll be tell, uh, tell Aviv or tell Hebron or tell uh, Jericho. And that it's called a tell because it's a mound. And what they did in cities is if a city got conquered and the walls were conquered, then they would just build new walls and build them higher. So over thousands of years, where these cities landed, there'd be big mounds or hills. So it is not hard to find the major cities and do archaeology in Israel. There are tells that tell you where they're at. Pun intended. Um, Hazer getting burned with fire is confirmed. If you want to look this up and have fun with it, Garstang did research on this. Garstang's archaeology, uh, was he went through all the... He got first dibs when Israel started allowing in archaeology or archaeologists. So he's he got his name on it on Jericho and on a few other places. Uh, but he found Hazor. He dug it up. It was burnt. Uh, it was all the stuff the Bible said it would be. Um, and 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 we also find that on the other cities they aren't burnt. So you can find multiple tells throughout Israel. The ones that are supposed to be burnt, according to Joshua, are burnt. The ones that the other ones are just destroyed, and there's no evidence of burning. So. As of today, there's complete concurrence between archaeology and the Bible. Not that archaeology proves the Bible, but it's like the Bible proves archaeology. It kind of goes that way. So verse 14, uh, we get this huge memorial with Hazor, and then other ones are not. Verse 14, this, all the spoil of these cities and the livestock. Livestock's important because you can do barbecue with it. So that's an essential piece of the spoils. The children of Israel took as booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. There we have that again. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses commands this takeover of the Holy Land in Exodus 34. Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 20. If you've been in this Bible study, we've gone through all those chapters. It was a clear command from God and from Moses to do it. So we get this uh, conclusive verse in verse 15, and now we get a summary of it all. So verse 15 kind of ends the second section of Joshua. The first section being chapters 1 through 5, when they're setting up and preparing for this battle. Then we have chapters 6 through 9 and the first part of 10 where they do battle and then we get the records afterwards so we get to dig into the records next again you got to be a committed bible scholar to want to enjoy this stuff and hopefully you will love it as much as i do by the time we're done um, because it is kind of fun um thus joshua took all the land the mountain country all the south all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings. He struck them down and killed them. Joshua had made war a long time with those kings. So as many of the themes as we've seen in Joshua, 
the book of Joshua, the details are really specific, right? So we saw like that they stepped to the water and the water stopped. They held the ark here and then they moved. Everything we've seen in Joshua has been very detailed. Then we get to these verses. There's almost no detail whatsoever here. It's like a geographical survey, thus the maps on your table. So in verse 16, you get a topographical survey, right? It's about the kind of land that they conquered. In verse 17, you get a geographical survey of the same land. And at the end of verse 17, where it says all their kings, you get a political survey. Joshua conquered the highlands and the lowlands. Joshua conquered this geographical area. Joshua conquered all the political rulers that were in that area. But there's nothing here that says he did mass slaughter and killed everybody, and we'll see that as we go through these three chapters. There are thousands of Canaanites in the land, but the kings are gone. The leaders are gone. The idols are gone. It is conquered because there's no other competing god with Israel's god of Yahweh. But there's a lot of Canaanites that are still here um, that are not combating Israel or attacking Israel with armies. So we'll have to kind of see what that looks like. They will, they were told to drive those people out of the land, but they don't do it. So these people will, for the rest of the Old Testament, be a thorn in the side of Israel. They are today a thorn in the side of Israel. They were not driven out of the land when they were supposed to be. Um, So we can see that. But all we see in verse 17 is that the kings were killed. Uh, They are walking with God and they are learning to follow God. That's positive. Um, they're actually becoming less important. There's less detail about their mistakes. And God is becoming more important because we're just seeing that kind of sweeping thing. Verse 18 says it's a long time. And verse 10 says it's at that time. Both of those are markers of chronology. Um, But it establishes the chronology of verse 6 as one day. And then in verse 8, they chase them with no timestamp. And then in verse 10, it says after that primary battle. Josephus says the rest of this, or verse 18, took about five years. But that's Josephus. It's not the Word of God. The Word of God doesn't give us those details. Like, And life is like that, too. When we remember our life, we highlight a few stories. Mike and I were ta- telling our life stories this week, and I, to- and, and I figured I, it was about six stories strung together my whole life can be summed up in. And Mike's writing his memoirs, and it's about the same. All of us have about six, seven stories that really tell our spiritual narrative. And Joshua's kind of the same way. There's kind of these big deals that have to do with the spiritual life and the heart. And then, you know, and then they worked really hard for five years. And that's all you get. And our lives look a lot like that. If you wrote our lives in a book, we'd have a very similar kind of thing. So if you want to kind of figure this out another way, uh, Josephus says five years, that's Some people think that's wrong, that he actually got it wrong, which is why Josephus is not a biblical writer. Caleb was 40 when he spied out the land. Then they did a 38-year march in the wilderness. And then Caleb is 85 years of the conclusion of the war, which would imply if you use Caleb's, where we get Caleb's age markers, that the conquest of the land under Joshua took about seven years. Either way, it's, you know, if that matters that much to you. I know I may have people where it's there. Verse 19. Uh, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, uh, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy. Again, the word destroy there is to disperse or to drive them out, to melt them, Uh, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses 
hardening of the hearts. We saw that phrase back in Egypt. Remember, God hardened Pharaoh's hearts, and we talked about that a little bit. When God gives up on people or he's trying to do a work, there are examples in the Bible where he gives people over to their will. And that's called a hardening of their heart. It's their heart and their will. It's not God demonically possessing them and forcing them to do something they don't want to do. He's just not softening their heart. And he's letting that happen. Prior to being a believer, my heart was going my own way too. God had to intervene to soften my heart. But I didn't need any help hardening it. Like I was okay to harden my own heart. So there's a point at which people can be so fine with sin that they glory in it, and God just says, fine, I'll give you over to it. And that's a really tough concept, because if you only see the bumper sticker version of a very simple God that loves everyone and tries to get everyone, it's just not biblical. There are points where God just says, I'm going to let go and give up on you. There are people that will be punished in the wrath of God, and it's hard to avoid that in the Bible. Romans 1.28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do the things which are not convenient. So there are points where God just says, if you don't want me and you don't want my law, I'm not going to force myself on you. You can have it that way. See how that works for you. And that can happen. So that's, a, that's something that people struggle with. It's a tough passage in the Bible when we see that. Um, but people fall away from God. God wants them to come back. We see that throughout the Bible, but there are points where he's not going to force them to come back. He's not going to do that. So I think it's interesting in in verse 19 that they point out Gibeon again, saying, look, there is a city that made peace with God, and God welcomed them in. But none of the other cities were willing to do that. So, And we look at that kind of uh, ratio often in our lives. So now we get this little addendum at the end, verse 21. And at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and all the mountains of Judah, and all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They only remained in Gaza, Gath, and in Ashdod. Who are the children of Anakim? Again, why did they get special mention? First of all, you should recognize that name. The children of Anakim are special. They're a unique group of people. Uh, Anakim as a word in the Hebrew means long-necked. In other words, they were really, really, really tall people. Uh, and, and they're the people that the Israelites were scared of at the very beginning of this story, way, way, way back. Caleb and Joshua went to scout out the land. The rest of the spies saw the Anakim, and they were terrified. And that's not a Star Wars character. So he cuts them off. He kills or chases them away. Caleb fights them. David is going to finish them. By the time we see David finishing the last of the Anakim, the guy's name is Goliath, and he's a giant, and he's described as being enormously tall. So there's this race or or ethnic group of people that are abnormally huge, and they're terrifying visually, um, but they they do get mentioned, and this little addendum in 21-22 kind of ends the narrative of conquering the land right back from where it started. So it's a nice bookend. Those very people that they were terrified of that Joshua said, we can take them, At the very end of this, Joshua gets to say, I was right. He gets to go to heaven and forevermore brag about the fact that he called it. Of course they could take him. And they take him in verse 21, 22. No big deal, just like everybody else. They are beatable, even though they're giants. So, um, oh, I just put the passages in here too. So, nevertheless, the the people be strong that dwell in the land. This is the spies report. 
and the cities are walled and very great. Moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amicalites dwell in the land to the south. So they were terrified of these people. They were giants. Um, they were a people great and tall, descendants of the Anakim, whom you know, of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Deuteronomy 9.2. Who can stand against them? God's people can. You know, the little hobbits. They can stand against them, no problem. So they remained. Uh, it says they remained. So here we get an internal passage where they were destroyed and cut off, yet they remained, which means destroyed does not mean what we think it means, right? So you can destroy the gods of a people and their influence on the land without actually murdering the human beings. There's some sort of line here, and we've seen it throughout Joshua. It's one of the lines that gets critiqued about Joshua. So how can they be destroyed, yet they remain in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod? Where's Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod? That's what we today call the Gaza Strip. And there are still people living there that are a thorn in the side of Israel. It's not the same people, um, but it's the same part of the land. Later on, that region becomes called the Philistine people. They're believed to be Phoenicians that settled in that land and mixed with these people that are left there now. So those people gather, and from those people, uh, we see Goliath is from the city of Gath. So it all connects. That's in 1 Samuel 17, if you want to read the story of Goliath this week. So these are the people they first feared in the land. They're the last people that get mentioned as they conquer the land. So it's a nice addendum. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that God, all that the Lord had said to Moses, and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to the children, to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Bum, bum, bum. So that's kind of the end of the conquest of the land. The point of war, it's important to get this. For the people of God, the whole point of war is the very last line so that they can arrive at a place of peace. The point of war is not ongoing conquest like Alexander the Great trying to conquer the entire known world. That's not Israel. The point of war was to get a place of peace and sanctuary for their people so that they could stop battling. That belief has been dominant in Judeo-Christian history since this line was written in the book of Joshua. The people of God don't actively pursue war. They will actively go and defend their allies. They will actively defend themselves but they don't go out looking for conquest necessarily. So when we see God's people acting like God's people, they're not out con conquering new lands. When we see God's people in sin, we see some really horrible narratives where they do these kinds of things. Even Israel has periods where they have evil kings that think conquest is the game plan. And God doesn't reward that behavior or honor people when they do it. The goal of war is to rest from war. And I think that's a huge point. So the Canaanites are still around. They're linked genetically, even in the last few years. They've done studies on the, the Syrians, the Lebanese, um, the, the folks that are the Palestinians. Almost all of them have genetic connections to the Canaanite people. So we do see that those connections have followed through. Um, Mike is one of them. So God can love them still. That's okay. Um, so we, we have an end to this section, and the conquest section kind of ends here. Uh, and now we get the annals of history. Joshua took the whole land, means all of the powers. The people aren't dead, but the powers of the false gods are completely dead. They have dominance over this part of the world. So Joshua obeys God. The elders and the priests obey God. All the people together obey God. Uh, and now the tribes need to learn to obey God on their own. 
So they've all followed Joshua. But as we divide up the land, the expectation is the individual tribal leaders have to do the same thing in their territory. The maps on your desk show the territories that we're about to get into. But the idea is they're supposed to go through and finish this work. So connection to Jesus. In every chapter of the Old Testament, where's Jesus? There is a, a spiritual connection here, but that's, this is a tough chapter to do that in. But here's what I'll give you. 1 John 2, verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and it's true, and it's not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now that they've learned from Joshua, they have to, the tribes have to do this on their own. And they have to carry it on. So just a thought, Jesus came and trained his disciples. His disciples trained other disciples. We get trained by other disciples, and someday you're going to train other people too. So that's the game plan for God, is that there is a handoff. And it's not that we can all follow Joshua forever. It is that we have some mind of our own, and we start doing God's work on our own. So we have the word of God to show us what to do, just like Joshua had the word of God through Moses. And then we have to actually do it. The elders and the tribal leaders had Joshua as a model, and then they have to go do it. We have Jesus as our model. The point is that we go do it. And we're supposed to, the expectation is there to do that. Chapter 12. The kings conquered by Moses get listed first. So on your map, this is everything east of the Jordan River. The Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the half-tribe of Manasseh gets like a huge chunk of land. So... Anyways, these are the kings of the land whom the children of Israel defeated and whose land they possessed on the other side, which is the eastern side of the Jordan, towards the rising sun, that's where we get east, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the eastern, plain, uh, eastern Jordan plain. One king was Sihon of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon and ruled the half of Gilead from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon from the middle of that river, even as far as the river Jabbok, which is the border of the Ammonites, on the eastern side, eastern Jordan plain from the Sea of Chinaroth as far as the Sea of Arabah, which is the salt sea on your maps, uh, the road to Beth Jeshemoth, and southward below the slopes of Pisgah. The other king was Og, king of Bashan. So this is Joshua confirming everything we read back in, uh, in the book of Numbers, right? So this is one book referring to another book. Historically, this all the two books match up perfectly. Um, the other king was Og, king of Bashan, and his territory, who was the remnant of the giants who dwelt at Ashtaroth and Edrai, verse 5, and reigned over Mount Hermon, over Salca, over all of Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Makathites, and over half of the Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Verse 6, these Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the children of Israel had conquered, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given it as a possession to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. I love that the record of Moses is that he's a servant of the Lord. And for me, that just, I don't know, I'm going through all these names, and that's the thing that pops out. I'm like, I hope someday God just says, Sean, servant of the Lord. And I, and I hope your hearts are the same way, that at the end, it's, it doesn't matter what we did in service to the Lord, but God just says, you know, name, fill in the blank, service, servant of the Lord. And that's the title we're all kind of looking for. Uh, so this is the detail of the Chronicle. Moses did all this stuff. It draws the borders. In Leviticus, it draws the borders around how we worship God. Deuteronomy draws the borders around the law of God and how we're supposed to live. 
Joshua draws the borders around the geographical territory of where they're supposed to live. They're supposed to live in this territory that they've been given. Now we see God's even detailing the day-to-day life for Israel at a really particular level. If God cares this much about where the boundary stones go, how much more does he care about your life and what you do and how you do things? God is that detailed. He is that concerned about the details. And God wants to be part of your life at this level of boring detail. Again, I'm trying to add thoughts into this that just let's pause and think God loves us that much. After the wars, God gives his people rest. They get peace, laughter, family, food. That's the goal. And then we get to have this accounting. So he does the same thing with new believers. After the battles of the book of Acts, after people get saved, after they're in the town square and they're doing all that spiritual stuff, what's the end result of all that? Acts chapter 2, verse 46. So they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. The purpose of all of our spiritual battles is that we can hang out and eat challah bread together. That honestly is the be-all and end-all. That's the bee's knees. For God's people, that's what we want, is that fellowship, community, and love. It's just that simple. So we go do God's word because we have to. But what we want is the simplicity of heart that we have here. It's just simple. This is the home that we go to. It's the peace that draws people to the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's good. And we know it's good to the core of our soul. We just don't know how to make that happen on our own. We have to trust that God can make that amongst his people seeking his word together. And that's, I just think that's a wonderful thought. So the rest, the next verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 47, they were, they were simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Right? That's what it looks like. That's the goal. And that, that's what we get there. That's the possession that we're given. And in this covenant that we have with God, that's what he promises us. So we want that. So it's relevant when we look at Israel to look at the earliest recorded land claims that Israel has. It's relevant in part, like this chapter is a big deal to Jewish people because it defines on the earliest recorded record who conquered and owned that land. The Canaanites had no record of land. They had no assessment or assayer's work done on the land. They never defined what they owned. So when we look at this chapter, we're looking at the first recorded legal document that outlines the, the land and the borders of the land. This is, to Jews, a very important piece of, piece of literature. To us, it's like, eh, okay. Um, so verse 7, and these are the kings of the country which Joshua and the children of Israel conquered on this side of the Jordan. On the west, from Baal God in the valley of Lamedon, as far as Mount Halak, to the ascent of Seir, which Joshua gave to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their divisions. In the mountain country, in the lowlands, in the Jordan plain, in the slopes and in the wilderness, and in the south, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. This is an epic ending for Jewish readers. Like, again, it's tough to read this because we don't know any of these places. But what they're doing is outlining the land in word. So this is like rolling the credits at the end of a major biblical narrative of God's people coming into the land. It's the fulfillment of all his promises. So this is the song that plays at the end of the movie, right? It just doesn't read that way in English. So I'm going to translate this to Minnesotan for you, if I could. Because I want you to capture what this would 
feel like for these readers? Like, he did it all. He conquered the whole territory. So if we were going to translate this into our Minnesotan language, it would read like this. On the west, from Canada to Fargo, along the Red River Valley descending south into the falls. In the north, the wilderness along the Rainy River, Superior Forest, Grand Portage, to Lake Superior, all the way to Duluth, with all the hills of the Iron Range included. On the east, south along the St. Croix River, where it meets the mighty Mississippi River, to La Crosse and all the plains and all the farmlands from, on the Minnesota River and the Mississippi River and everything in between. The Sioux, the Dakota, the Lakota, the Anishabi, and the French all conquered. Does that read a little different? That's what it sounds like to a Jewish reader. God did it all. He conquered all of it. They've all been moved out. The idols and the false gods of those people are gone. And I think the French were Catholic, so I'm not trying to rip on... But when Minnesota's boundaries were first drawn, there were people that lived here, right? And they lived here after the boundaries were drawn too. But the gods of those people should never have rose, risen again. That, the God, that land serves a king, a high king, Yahweh. And that's what's going on there. So when we read these verses, think of them that they would have that kind of epic strolling through the land to them. The king of Jericho won. The king of Ai, which is besides Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. What's the one stuff mean? What? They're counting. Yep. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Deber won. The king of Geder won. The king of Hormah won. They make, you know, good pork chops. The king of Ered won. The king of Libna won. The king of Adullam won. The king of Makedah won. The king of Bethel won. The king of, yeah, Bethel was defeated. The king of Tepua won. The king of Hefer won. They make great pork chops, or not pork chops, but beef ribs, right? Uh, the king of Aphek won. The king of Lasheron won. They like to whip people. The king of Madon won. The king of Hazor won. The king of Shimron, Maron won. The king of Akshaf won. The king of Tanak won. The king of Megiddo won. The king of Kadesh won. The king of Jokniam won in Carmel. They like sweets. One, the king of Dor in the heights of Dor one, and the king of the people of Gilgal one, the king of Tirzah one. All the kings equals 31. Is there any meaning in the number 31? No, if you can find it, let me know. Which lends to the idea that this is a historical document that counts 31 because that was actually the number. Where in other parts we've seen things where it's clear those numbers have some meaning or they'll mention certain cities and certain kings like we did last week. And we're like, oh, that could be, they're talking about the state of the heart. This is a spiritual lesson in addition to historical. Here they're just listing all of them. There doesn't seem to be a rhyme and reason other than they're attempting, the writer is making a historical record and documentation. So if they're that careful in their historical records, how much more validity does that add when they're trying to teach us spiritual truths? And that's part, it doesn't disclaim the spiritual parts of the Bible because this says they know how to do history too. And they're not fooling around when they do it. They're doing it very accurately. So historically, these kinds of records make a stunning blueprint when we compare it to other documents, other Assyrian records, Egyptian records. We can confirm all this. It's almost like God's saying, go ahead and try me. Like, prove me wrong. And for years, critics of the Bible have tried to do it, and they're, they're utter failures. They just don't even begin to stand up to it. 
the best they got is that Jonah was eaten by a male fish and spat out by a female fish. We'll talk about that this weekend. Like, they got nothing. They got nothing. When they got all of this, any of this could be disproved saying that king never existed in that land. So all of this stuff is just daring historians to test God's truth. So the work of God happens in the real world in real time. It doesn't happen in a closet with magic golden tablets. It doesn't happen in a basement with some archangel talking to some guy in the desert. It doesn't happen up on a mountain where Confucius says he saw some things or Buddhists having a way for us. It doesn't happen like that. When God operates, it's out in public in the real world. It's testable. It's verifiable. There's no other world religion that puts itself up against history like what we just read. And you thought it was just a list of boring kings, right? It's a list of boring kings that validates the rest of this book and the miraculous claims that it makes. Go ahead, try me, test me. See what it looks like. So God accounts for everything. Joshua is written as a historical record. It's not a myth and it's not a fable. And any idiot that says it is hasn't read the book. They just don't understand what they're talking about. And we have a lot of that in our culture right now. Idiots that read the bumper sticker but don't bother to read the book. And we have so much of that. When you look at this, yeah, it's boring to read, but this is the stuff that adds the stamp of approval on everything else we've been reading. It says, go ahead and test. I've done everything in public. God puts it all out there. We have this kind of promise, and we have the promise of tribulation, but we also have the promise of victory. And it comes with that kind of confirmable detail, just like Joshua. What looks mundane should be amazing to us. It should read like a victory record. John 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He's already beaten it. We should take great comfort in this list of kings that got beat and how easy it was for Joshua to beat them because we have the exact same promises about the entire chaotic world that we live in. It's all going to get subdued before God. Joshua chapter 13. I told you we're going to plow tonight. Now Joshua's old, he's advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, I love this, you're old and advanced in years. Thanks, God. Appreciate that, you know. You made me old, and there remains very much of the land to be possessed. You have not finished all of the work that I have. Is God being mean here or just truthful and honest? Uh, the idea of old, advanced in years... <laughs> Us that are getting older know this, though I can't say that. Mike says I'm not old enough to say that yet. The older you get, the creakier your joints get. The harder it is to stand up. So the idea when it says advanced in years, the, uh, the connotation of that line is that he's feeling his years. Like Moses got old and he's still climbing up mountains. Joshua gets old and he's feeling it. Like, oh, it's hard to even get up and move. Um, there's an idea here in Joshua 13 that there's a generational work that God does. God works with generations. So any work that we do in our life, at some point we got to hand it off. And if we're not training up people to carry God's word forward, we're not doing our job as a generation. Period. We got giants that have gone before us. We only need to go back one generation. We got Billy Graham, J. Vernon McGee, Chuck Smith. We got these giants in the faith that have gone just before us, before us and communicated the word of God to their generation. So young people, I'm going to die someday then it's your job. Can you imagine that feeling for Joshua? Like he did, faithfully did his work, 
but he's got to hand it off at some point. So that's what we're going to do. That's the feeling you should get from that first line. God wants the battle to keep going, but God's going to work through generations so no individual gets all the credit. And he hands it off. I'm not going to die it soon. I hope, God willing, I last for a long time. It's not prophetic or anything, I hope, like that. For all the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us, 2 Corinthians 1.20. The goal of all of our lives is purity and holiness. We clean the land, and then we clean the hearts. So there's a spiritual connection that's going on here. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. We're supposed to do that till we get old and die. And that battle never ends. So I just love the intro to Joshua 13. I like that because I find it really comforting that as we get older and we get closer and closer to that part important in our life, that it's important to understand that's the, that's the game plan. That That's normal. In fact, uh, death and taxes are the only two things that we're all guaranteed, right? So we're supposed to go until we, we die. Joshua is a great example of that. Um, the Canaanites, we see here in, in verse 1, there remains much of the land yet to be possessed. So though they had conquered it topographically, geographically, and politically, they still have to conquer the hearts and minds of the people. So in the same way, when the new believers, when Pentecost hit and the Holy Spirit hits them and thousands of people are getting saved, there's thousands of people across the street that aren't getting saved. And so all of that, in fact, there is no town that gets saved except for one in the entire Bible and in all of human history, and that's Nineveh. We'll get to that this weekend. But every other town, there's no complete conquest spiritually. There's always spiritual stuff to still go. So we start 13 with that premise, and then we get into all this. Verse 2, this is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines, and all of that of the Geshurites, from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward. Notice east of Egypt, we're talking about a huge territory. This is way outside the borders of modern Israel. Um, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, the Ekronites, the Havites, uh, the Parasites, they like to cling on. <laughs> Verse 4, from the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Merah that belongs to the Sidonians as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites and all of Lebanon, towards the sunrise from Baal Gaad to the Mount, below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon as far as the brook of Mes Mesrafoth. You go ahead and try these. And all the Sidonians, I'm going to drive them out from before the children of Israel, only to divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance as I've commanded you. Now, therefore, divide the land as an inheritance into the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Together with verse 1, Joshua, you're getting to be an old man. You're going to divide the land. They're going to finish your work. So you're going to hand this off, right? It's going to go to 12 tribes. Jesus is going to go away from the disciples, and he hands off his work to how many people? Twelve disciples. You say, but Judas wasn't part of them. Yeah, they drew straws, and they filled that twelfth in. So there's a complete mirroring of the work of Jesus and the work of Joshua, and it gets handed off to go out into every town and make sure God's work gets done. God says he's going to drive them out. I don't know if you picked it up, but the promise here is God's going to do all the work. God's going to fight their battles. He's going to do it in front of them. All they have to do is show up. So the rest of the book of Joshua, that theme's been what has happened. If they don't show up, this promise is not is conditional on that attendance. So we got nine chapters laying all this out. 
This is going to be tough devotional reading if you read ahead this week because it's really just a lot of land and territory. For us, just embrace the idea that there's no other historical document like this. Like this is truly unique. And for some people, the historians, the archaeologists, those folks that really like the details, this stuff is a gold mine. To most average normal people, it's a pretty tedious. This is the part of the reading where you stop reading through the Bible. Because you just get to this and you're like, oh, discipline yourself and read through it because God put it there. And, and hash through the names along with me. Um, this is begging to be checked out. It is God putting it all out in front of humanity, saying, test me, know it. It is evidence that these are not myths and they're not stories. They're not written that way. They're written as historical documents. I've made that point. It can easily be discounted with anybody who has a shovel. Like literally, you can go out into a physical world today and dig these places up. So God did it in geographical space. I love that. Um, if God records the details like this, how much more does he care about you? So the land that let re let yet remains, the land's divided east of the Jordan. Each tribe has to do its part. Each area has parts they can finish. Most of the tribes will go into their territory and just tax the Canaanites, but they don't drive them out. This becomes a major problem, and it gets pointed out as early as this. They never possess the land fully. That promise has never been kept. So 2 Kings 8 kind of points out how they never really conquer the land, even at that point. So at the end of the national conquest, beginning this tribal inhabitation, there are tons of people yet to be driven out. So um, oh, I don't know where I got this. Science Magazine? Sorry, sometimes my notes confuse me too. Um, Researchers have looked at these migrants that left the area right about 5,000 years ago, this period of history. And one of the, one of the quotes I brought from, from this area in Lebanon, or Iraz, from, from Iraq to Lebanon to Egypt, all these parts north, west, and east of the land, there is a mass migration, and I've talked about it, mentioned it before, uh, Science Magazine, July 27th, in 2017, so this is what, four years ago? They're doing that genetic testing. This is where I'm making reference to that. The Lebanese population today is largely descended from ancient Canaanites, inheriting more than 90% of their genes from this ancient source. So we're finding out through genetic testing, you know, people that swab their mouth and say, where am I from? They're finding out that there's a common ancestral thread here that was never pushed totally out of the land. They just clustered and grouped up. So all of these little groups of people around Israel were largely people that were at some point pushed out of this land. Uh, there are Egyptian records and Iraqi records where they're connected to the Canaanite people. So how do the Canaanite people have genealogies that go in Iraq and in Egypt and in Lebanon and Syria and Turkey? Because they scattered from this land about 5,000 years ago, and with them went their genetic code. So the Gazite territory is still Gaza. It's still in the news today. It's still a thorn in the side of the Israelis who are right now occupying the land. Verse 8. With the other tribe of the Reubenites and the Gadites received their inheritance, which Moses had given them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given them. From a roar which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the town that is the midst of the ravine. So they're outlining the territory of these tribes. All the plain of Medeba, as far as Dibon, and all the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, as far as the border of the children of Ammon. Gilead and the border of the Geshurites, the Machathites, 
all of Mount Hermon, all of Bashan as far as Salkah, all the kingdom of Og and Bashan who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edri, who remained in the, in the remnant of the giants, for Moses had defeated and cast these out. Nevertheless, the children of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites and the Machathites. The Geshurites and the Machathites dwell among Israel to this day. So when people say, aha, aha, the Israelites never did push everybody out, you can say, yeah, that's what the Bible says in Joshua 13, verse 13. Like, it's, they don't say that they pushed out everybody. They actually say that that wasn't completed. It was the will of God, and it never got carried out. So part of what they're pointing out here, I think, sets up the rest of the Old Testament. They were supposed to do that, but they didn't do it. They made alliances. They collected taxes. They didn't drive them out. So that's the context for Judges chapter 1. If you do a study of the book of Judges, they, they lead off with that concept. They never push the people out, so Judges is an entire book of people having to deal with the folks that weren't pushed out. So they become a problem. They become a murderous problem. They become a problem of, of corruption, sexual corruption, idol, idol worship corruption. Uh, they become a problem of crime. So they become a problem for Israel in a lot of different ways as we go through the rest of the Bible. Absalom's mom, for instance, is a Geshurite. Of all David's kids, only one of them rebelled against him. And, it, and when he ran away, he ran up to Gesher to hang out with these people. So we have stories all throughout the Bible, and there's some connection to these people that are getting mentioned in this chapter. So <laughs> this, is, this isn't me. This is uh, Dave Gusick. Have, in your life, have you ever gone in the wrong direction, which you look back on and you think, boy, that was sinful. That wasted a lot of my time. And you look back and think there were little subtle hints way back at the start that you shouldn't go that way. What we see in verse... 13 is a little subtle hint that they shouldn't have gone this way, that later on becomes massive problems for the throne of Israel, actually. So I just think it's interesting that there are long-term effects that are just mentioned here but not really spent a lot of time on. Then we get an interesting verse, verse 14. Only the tribe of Levi, he had given no inheritance. The sacrifices of the Lord God of Israel made by fire are their inheritance, as he said to them. So they mention one of the tribes that gets no inheritance in verse 14. You could say that's not fair, because why wouldn't the Levites? Now they're here, they were part of the battle, why don't they get something? Um, they don't get anything because um, they get to serve God. But their home is not of this world. And that connects a lot to a holy priesthood that Jesus established when he established Christianity. We likewise get no inheritance in this earth. In this earth. There's nothing in this world that we pine after or go after. We get nothing. And that's, you could say, well, that's not any fair. We don't get to go out and, you know, do all the stuff that the world gets to do. Or you could say, or we get the blessing of God and we get to have the fellowship and peace and joy and those kinds of things. So when we follow Jesus, we give up the world. That's a clear New Testament concept that the Levites are giving it a mirror or a shadow of here in the Old Testament. Uh, John 17, I've given them your word. This is the inheritance we get. We get God's word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. This is Jesus talking. I do not pray that you should be taken out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of this world, just as I'm not of this world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is the truth. And as you sent me into the world, also I send them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. God doesn't promise to take us out of the trouble. 
And I think that's a tough concept for some Christians to really get their head around. He promises to put you in it. So he wants you to be a warrior. He puts you in the battle because he expects you to be in the world and to be holy and sanctified through the process of following God's word. And the Levites are the same thing. It's at God's word. They get no inheritance in this world. They get, they get all the blessings as a tribe. I just think that's so cool, being a non-landowner. Uh, verse 15, east of the Jordan. Moses had given the tribe of the children of Reuben an inheritance according to their families. Their territory was from Aror, which is on the bank of the river Arnon, and the city that's in the midst of the ravine, and all the plains by Medeba, Heshbon, and all the cities that are in the plain, Dibon, Bamath Baal, Beth Baal Mayan, Jaza, Kedamoth, Methphah, Kirjathayim, Sibma, Jareth Shahar on the mountain valley. I'm just going to take a pause here for my own sanity. Again, there's a discipline to this, right? Like we're doing it because it's God's words. So we're going to read every single word. Alyssa and Zach would be proud of me because we're not going to skip one word in this Bible study. We're going to get through the entirety and the fullness of it, even if it's just raw discipline. Verse 20, Beth Peor, the slopes of Pisgah, Beth Jesimoth, and all the cities of the plain, and all the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, who Moses struck with the princes of Midian, Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, Reba, she's a good singer, who are the princes of Sihon dwelling in the country, the children of Israel who also sing, killed the, with the sword Balaam, and the son of Beor, the soothsayer, among who were killed by them, and the border of the children of Reuben was the bank of the Jordan River. This was the inheritance of the children of Reuben, according to their families, the cities, and their villages. So verses 15 and 16 give the boundaries. Verses 17 and 20 give specific city allotments. And 21 talks about those that were in power that are not in power anymore. So we get geographical, political, and political, or something like that. Make sense? Verse 22, don't miss that we just mentioned Balaam there. Uh, Numbers 20 through, 20 through 24 gives the whole narrative. Balaam is just one of many that are listed here, which implies that the story we saw in Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, is a story that repeated itself all over the ancient world. All of these soothsayers and, and sorcerers and magicians that worked for all these other gods, they were defeated just like the kings that served those other gods. So when Balaam gets mentioned here and they point out that he's a soothsayer, not only does that reaffirm a second book, because Joshua and Numbers have different authors, both referencing this character, Moses was the big guy for Israel. Balaam was the big spiritual guy for the Canaanites. All these Canaanite tribes looked at Balaam like their high priest. So when he goes down, it's like Moses versus Balaam, and there's a point here that, that Balaam didn't amount to much of anything. He was killed with a sword like every other man, right? Or if you go back to Numbers, Balaam's actually like spiritually bested by a donkey, right? The Jewish people have a very interesting take on this. Their big high priest wasn't as smart as a donkey was or as tuned into the God of the universe as that donkey was. So we see that the son of Beor is bested. He's set to the side. Um, I think it's important here to look at other texts outside the Bible. And there's the Mesha steel is from 840 BC. It's an Aramaic. And it was discovered well before the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's called the Moabite, Moabite stone. It's in France at the Louvre. So you can go and you can see it. And it, it's, what's that? You saw it yourself? 
So we have people that have seen it in the room. Uh, it mentions David and it mentions Yahweh as the people of God. It is not a Jewish stone. It is, it is of the Moabites. And it mentions Balaam. Uh, it uses Balak and Balaam as characters that gleefully list how every one of these cities get retaken by the Moabites. Reuben falls apart. He's like water. Remember the curse for the Reuben? Like when Jacob in Genesis 49 said, Reuben is like water, he's unstable. He stands and takes the territory for the king, but he doesn't stand for long. And these tribes come back. And the way the Moabite or the Mesha steel is written is like Balaam and Balak kind of cheering from heaven. And then we took back that city, and then we took back that city, and these Jews couldn't hold up to us here, and they couldn't hold up us. It's gleefully delighting in the demise of Reuben. And it's a whole document. The other thing, in, in, in the effort to shame Yahweh, it actually adds a ton of validity to the Bible. Because here's another group of people mentioning all the same cities. So even in their effort to curse the people of God, historically, they're still blessing the people of God. It's like Balaam all over again, trying to curse Israel, and all that comes out of his mouth are blessings. I just love it. So it's notable that the children of Reuben have not one notable character through the rest of the Bible. So this territory we just did, the future of this, if you want to, the rest of the story is nothing. These people don't conquer the land. They don't stand for God. They quickly fall to idols. And historically speaking, they, they're, they're an irrelevant point of Jewish history. The nothing comes out of these people. Then you get to the next group in verse 24. Moses gives an inheritance to the tribe of Gad, to the children of Gad, according to their families. Remember the Gadites were the, the big warriors, the big tough people? Their territory was Jazer, all the cities of Gilead, the half of the land of the Ammonites as far as Aror, which is before Rabbah, and from Heshbon to Ramath Mitzpah to Betanim, from Mahanaim to the border of Debir, the valley of Beth Haram, Beth Nimrah, Succoth, Zaphon, the rest of the kingdom of Sihon and Heshbon, with Jordan as its border, as far as the edge of the Sea of Chinnereth, that's Galilee, on the other side of the Jordan eastward. This is the inheritance of the children of Gad, according to the families, cities, and villages. I apologize for not pronouncing these all right. I'm just saying that I'm pronouncing them with a Minnesota accent. Yeah. Right? Okay. So just for the record, there's nothing left out here. Verse 25, Jazer later becomes the Levitical city. It's a huge city. Uh, Numbers 21 kind of points out that, that Gad is there. The Moabites brag on the mesh of steel about how Chemosh helps them take back the city of Jazer. So this is one of the cities they brag about, like we took that one back too. So Gad also is going to follow, uh, fall away, and they're going to lose these cities over time. Um, God has a reason to keep these records because they're going to match and bring confirmation to all this stuff. So it's in the word of God. Uh, Gad is going to constantly be fighting battles. So every major invasion of Israel goes through this land. If you want to get into Israel, you have to go between the Dead Sea on your map and that Sea of Chinnereth. You have to go th right through this territory to invade Israel. So Gad gets stomped on all the time. So even the greatest of warriors are going to get beaten down over the time. And spiritually speaking, I'm looking at it thinking, if we're always out fighting battles spiritually and we're picking fights all the time, even the mightiest of people will get worn down doing that. you got to find places of joy in addition to getting into it over spiritual issues. The argument and the quibbling doesn't often work spiritually. So it looks like a nice, safe territory. 
it's all pretty. There's nice plush lands. Remember, in Numbers, they liked it because they could bring their livestock and sheep there. It looks beautiful, but it's actually really hazardous. It looks like peace, but it's actually war that they encounter for the rest of their history. So what they thought was a safe place is not where God wanted them to be, and it doesn't turn out to be a safe place. You may have that in a, in a work situation or a family situation. What you thought was a nice, safe place is not safe at all. It's actually really hazardous. And, and it's because it's maybe not where God wants you. So they're too far away from God's presence. They can't make the trip to the temple. They get compromised. They end up losing battles. And they have a perpetual, ongoing spiritual warfare in their territory for the rest of Gad's history. It's a really sad ending because they didn't take what God offered them in the promised land. They wanted land outside the promised land. Stephanie likes to point to Lot, that when Lot is first mentioned, he's outside the city, and then he's leaning his tent on the wall of the city, and the next time you see him, he's inside the city, and the next time you see him, he's one of the leaders of the city. That's how compromise works. At first, it looks really nice. It's all friendly. It's all good. Peace, peace, peace. But essentially, peace, peace, peace only works if you compromise your idea of holiness and you take what the world offers you, and you just compromise on it. And then the next thing you know, years have gone by, they're wasted, you find yourself worn out and tired and losing all the time because you're not pursuing holiness and taking what God's offered you. So they go full on for God, they're great warriors, then they get out, they settle outside of his territory, they compromise, and then they're devastated. And that's the pattern for the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 29 this is the biggest geographical territory. Moses also gives an inheritance to the half-tribe of Manasseh. It was for half the tribe of the children of Manasseh, according to their families. Their territory was from Mahanaim, all of Bashan, the kingdom of Og, the king of Bashan, and all the towns of Jer, which are in Bashan. Sixty cities, half of Gilead, and Ashtaroth, and Edri, the cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, were for, were for the children of Makar, the son of Manasseh, for the half the children of Makar, according to their families. So there's no record in Numbers 32.2 that the half-tribe of Manasseh is part of the request of Gad and Manasseh. It seems like there was only one family um, that actually kind of stood with the Reubenites and Gadites. And that it says the half-tribe of Manasseh, but it's really one big family that kind of hug out with, with those. Uh, Og being 60 cities, again, we're not mentioning every city. Um, but it's recorded, it's documented. Here's the rest of the story for these folks. First Chronicles 5.5. 5. And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers. They played the harlot after the gods of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of the pole, the king of Assyria, that is Tilglath-Pilisar, the king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. Where the Assyrians were nasty people. We'll get to the book of Jonah. We'll talk about it more, uh, which is nice. It's kind of interesting. We're doing that this weekend. Uh, they're, they're horrible. They, would, they invented torture. Historically speaking, they're the people that sat around and thought up ways to create the most possible pain in the human body. They, they had things that are, are disgusting to even mention. But when they get hauled off here, we know that part of how they hauled off slaves, that they, they'd have a giant chain and on that chain, there would be hooks interspersed in the hooks. And they would take those hooks and run them through the nose of each of the prisoners. And they would haul off their prisoners into captivity with big fish hooks. Like, these are not nice people. 
right? So the Reubenites and Gadites, that's what they get to deal with. At the end of the day, the people that they compromised with are the very same people that took them into captivity and had no heart for them whatsoever. All of that compromise with the enemy resulted in horrible things. It didn't work. So these are the areas which Moses, verse 32, had distributed as an inheritance in the plains of Moab on the other side of the Jordan by Jericho eastward. To, but the tribe of Levi, Moses, had given no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance. He had not said to them. Isn't that interesting in verse 33? Like, didn't we start this talking about the Levites and then we ended it talking about the Levites? You see the bookend that they have in this chapter? So in verse 14 and verse 33 are the two bookends. And it's pointed out that the sacrifice, they get God as an inheritance, which means the Levites, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, these are all the tribes in chapter 13 that don't really get an inheritance. So they're naming the land that the Reubenites and the Gadites get, but they don't get the blessings of God. So these are all, this, they group these together and put Levites on either side to point out these are the people that did not get the promised land. So there's no indication here that the Reubenites and Gadites are part of the team. In fact, with those Levite bookends, it's like they separate them out saying these people aren't getting the promised land because they didn't ask for it, they didn't want it. So they don't get God's promises in doing that. So this is kind of a big deal. If our kingdom is of this world, then we want this world. If our kingdom is a heavenly kingdom, then we pursue heavenly things. If our kingdom is this world, retirement matters. If our kingdom is this world, our land matters and our residual income matters. Our, in my academic world, our copyright matters, right? Who gets the title on that article matters. What promotion I get matters. How I'm compensated matters. The amount of number of days I get off matters. If our world is this world, those things matter. But if our world is a heavenly world, those things actually don't matter at all. They're not that important. And that's the major conflict we have with people in this world when they say this should matter to you. Or for the students, that A in class really matters. But I'll tell you a secret. I was a professor. It doesn't matter. It's just a letter on a piece of paper. And we buffalo people from, from five years old to teach them that the stuff of this world matters more than the stuff of the spiritual world. And we train them that way. It's an insidious thing that the world does. And I'm not saying you should get bad grades in school, but if you learn, don't do it for the grade. Do it because you have a heart and a mind that God gave you that should pursue learning. But the grade really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Steph couldn't, when we were homeschooling, we had to like put grades together. I was just like, A, 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 A. And Steph's like, you can't do that. <laughs> There's points. And I'm like, I can do it. I think they're doing great. A, A, A. It doesn't matter. And the world is like that. That's at a little level for children, but at a big level for adults, the job doesn't matter. If you're going to do a, do a job, do it for the glory of God. Do all things for the glory of God. None of the rest matters. Here's what Jesus says. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Jesus is going to the cross and he's teaching his disciples to not fight it. All right, take me to the cross. We'll see who wins this battle. So Satan thinks he won the earthly battle with Jesus. Jesus knows darn well this is a spiritual battle and he's going to have 2,000 years of worship at the other end of it. Like it's worth the cup of turmoil that he has. And he prays that in Gethsemane. Lord, take away this cup if you can. And the Lord's like, nope. This is, this is an eternal battle that we're fighting and we're in the same boat. Christians then most associate with the Levites. 
we don't get any inheritance in the land. We get God, and that's our inheritance. The Lord God of Israel was their inheritance, is what it says in verse 33. Our inheritance is with God in heaven. I just want to drive this point home with New Testament connections. 1 Peter 1.4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that doesn't fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. Nothing in the world stands the test of time like that. He said to them, this is something God says to us. He said the Levites were a holy priesthood. Jesus said we're a holy priesthood. We should really resonate with that. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in, and they steal, Matthew 6.20. 1 Peter 2.5, ye also as lively stones, this must be a King James, oops, I forgot to convert it to New King James, ye also as lively stones, you bunch of rocks, you're built up like a spiritual house. You're the brick and mortar of God's church. How's that, you rock? Like, that could be an insult, but to Peter, that's not an insult. He's the cornerstone. Like, he's, he's, a, he's a rock that's part of that church. And Jesus builds his church on rocks. So Peter writes it not like an insult, but like a compliment. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. What's the sacrifice we're supposed to give? Sacrifice of praise. Read the book of Leviticus again. We're commanded to dedicate our time weekly, monthly, annually to God and God's people. We're supposed to take a very small portion of our life and commit it to a fellowship of the saints. So we give our time, we give our worship and our praise, and we give everything God gives to us. That's where we lay up treasures in heaven, is we don't live for this world. We spend one day a week and we Sabbath it. We give it to God and we see what God does with it. And God does some pretty amazing things with it. And we get challah bread and barbecue. And it, it all comes as part of the plan. You can see that I love the Lord. When I got saved, I didn't think it would all be about barbecue. But now as the older I get, the more I realize, no, that's the peace and joy that we get. Peace of just some beef ribs in your mouth with your friends, family, fellowshipping. That's amazing. Spending time up at the camp this weekend. It's going to be awesome. Word of God, family, fellowship, funds, and guns. Like we're going to shoot stuff and we're going to be on the water and we're going to eat stuff and that's what it's all about. It's awesome. And we're going to store up for ourselves those memories, those treasures, because they matter and they're real and everything else is junk. So we take all that other stuff, we leave it where it belongs in the trash heap that's out there. Amen? All right, so we don't get the inheritance just like the Levites. I know, I'm stretching to pull stuff out of chapter 13. I get that. But thanks for being patient with it. Uh, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we, th we love that you put this much attention to the details because we know that you're a God of details and, and therefore we can trust you. Uh, Lord, we, know that you, we love that you put an invitation out for historians and archaeologists. Any human who wants to can go get a shovel and try to dig up the truth of the matter. And Lord, they just keep doing it and they keep finding that your word holds up. So Lord, we... We thank you that we don't have to have faith in fantasy. Lord, we don't have to gum ourselves up, Lord, to try to believe something that's hard for our souls to understand. Lord, you've rooted and displayed yourself in history. That history is revealed in your records, in, in extra-biblical records, uh, by thousands and millions of people that know Yahweh and know your name. We know you did that with one family. You can take the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and become world-renowned. 
We know that your salvation was demonstrated through your son, Jesus Christ, a single person, and that the name of Jesus is spread all over this planet. Uh, and Lord, we know that you do things in public so that our faith can be rooted in history and in truth, and we can move forward with the confidence and the boldness that you've told us to. Lord, help us like Joshua to not fear, to not fear the Amicalites, to not fear the Canaanites, um, and to be trusting, Lord, that your inheritance for us is the promised land. It is what is good and holy and true. And Lord, help us for, to store up things in heaven. It's so hard, Lord, to do that. This world is constantly badgering for our attention, and it wants us to be anxious and fearful and stressed out and worried. It wants us to be prideful and lustful and materialistic, Lord. It wants us to put our hearts on anything but you. Lord, help us to just resist that. We can't do it on our own, and we need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to guide us in our attention. Help us to fall in love with your word, your people, praising your name and lifting you up. And Lord, we just want to see you conquer territory and to do it before our eyes. Um, we just want to be there and see it when you do works in people's lives. Lord, we pray that you soften hearts of the people in our friends and our families, our relationships, Lord, the people that we know, um, our sons and daughters, our grandparents, soften their hearts. Move in the people of, that you have called unto your own, Lord, and help us to just be there to see it and serve where you need us. Help us to proclaim your truth and to do it with love and with grace each day. Be with us this week. Put an anointing on the people in this room, Lord, and may your spirit just flow through them as they go through this week, and may they have supernatural joy and peace of heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.